Well, there are basically two things that I want to say tonight. The first is this, that God can use anyone. And secondly, to be fully used, you need to be filled. We're beginning a new series in the book of Acts, this extraordinary history of that immediate period after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, when we see these incredible accounts of the spread of Christianity against all the odds. And this tonight, this uh, account of the transformation of Saul has to be one of the most radical character transformations that you can find in the whole uh, of the Bible. Saul, who is later renamed Paul, goes dramatically from being a persecutor of Christians, literally wanting to see Christians dead, to perhaps the church's greatest theologian, or if you don't like that, certainly a towering figure uh, in the history of Christianity. From being a faithful Jew who felt that his role was to keep the Jewish people on the straight and narrow, to someone who dramatically meets Jesus on the road to Damascus with everything changing <clears throat> as a result. Well, the theologian <clears throat> Tom Wright puts this in context and he explains Saul's perspective on the spread of Christianity. And I think it's helpful as we begin this series to try and think ourselves into the mindset of Paul, Saul, later to become Paul, Saul who is a faithful Jew seeking to maintain faithful Jewish tradition. And Tom Wright uh, puts it like this, he says that for Saul, the first followers of Jesus of Nazareth were a prime example of the deviant behavior that had to be eradicated if Israel's God was to be honored. Everything possible had to be done to stamp out a movement that would impede the true purposes of the one God of Israel, whose divine plans Saul and his friends believed were at last on the verge of glorious fulfillment. Until on the Damascus road, Saul came to believe that these plans had indeed been gloriously fulfilled, but in a way that he had never imagined. So Saul had been spending his time preparing the Jewish people for the coming of the Messiah, this centuries-old hope of God's people. And then, as we've read tonight, on the Damascus road, he meets Jesus and he realizes that the Messiah had already come. Well, the previous two chapters, I think, are helpful in terms of setting this uh, in context, setting the scene, because in uh, chapter 7, we've witnessed Stephen proclaiming the gospel and then being stoned to death for his faith. And there is uh, an intriguing little reference in verse 58 to the fact that Saul actually witnessed Stephen being stoned to death. He was complicit uh, in this act of martyrdom. And then in chapter 8, we read of the way in which the persecution of the church gets underway, where Saul is a key figure. And uh, chapter 8, verse 3, could hardly be clearer. Saul began to destroy the church. Luke does not mince his words. Going from house to house, Saul dragged off both men and women, 
and put them in prison. And despite this, despite the stoning of Stephen, despite men and women being imprisoned for the Christian faith, <clears throat> the gospel still spreads. And in chapter 8, we see Philip in Samaria, for example, carrying out many miraculous healings. Well, part of the uh, account of what happened in Samaria we'll return to later. But in that chapter, we also see the Ethiopian eunuch coming to faith. And so this is an extraordinarily heady atmosphere in which we uh, enter chapter 9. And I'll <clears throat> try and put us all out of some misery and take some water, and we'll see what happens. <clears throat> I've never known someone drink water in public and it make any positive difference, but I, you know... <clears throat> Saul, in chapter 9, I'm going to speak a little more softly. You may have to lean in to hear me. Saul, uh, in chapter 9, is still breathing out murderous threats and trying to find ways to imprison Christians. And I know it's a hot evening, and I know that our minds can easily be distracted, but this is the astonishing early history of our faith. And if we are ever tempted to think that, you know, Christianity is successful, look at our beautiful historic buildings in Oxford, for example. Just remember the kind of persecution that people were facing then. And of course, also remember the kind of persecution around the world, which many are still <clears throat> facing today. But then, on the road to Damascus, in the midst of this murderous campaign, of all people, Saul falls to the ground, and he hears a question being asked. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. This is the Jesus whom Saul does not believe raised from the dead. This is the Lord that Saul is not convinced is the Messiah, and he is suddenly speaking to him, and Saul is on the ground because of the enormity of this moment. And of course, this is no fleeting religious experience. It's not a warm tingle down his spine at the end of a final song uh, on a Sunday evening or something like that. And then, you know, you're bitching away in the pub afterwards and it's as if you never came to church. You know, this is not that. It's three days of blindness and not eating and not drinking. And then the Lord has to intervene to move the situation on. And the Lord appears to Ananias, who then enters uh, the picture in a vision, and sends him to Saul. Ananias is a good picture of what faithfulness looks like. You may be pretty uh, unconvinced that the Lord would ever speak to anyone in a vision. Well, thankfully, Ananias was not unconvinced. He was faithful. He responded to what the Lord was saying. He has his doubts, he's fearful, he knows what Saul has been doing in Jerusalem. But in verse 15, the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. So Ananias responds to the Lord's call and he lays hands on Saul so that he might see again 
and also that he might be filled with the Holy Spirit. His sight was restored, he got baptized, he regained his strength, and he goes on to become one of the greatest leaders in the early church. So as I've said, there are two key points that I want to make tonight. The first being that God can use anyone. Ananias quite sensibly was concerned about Saul. And like Ananias, sometimes we can let our own prejudice get in the way of who we might think God might move among. And I think it's worth us remembering that no one no grouping, no minority, no part of society is beyond God's ability to reach out his hand of friendship, of salvation, to see a life turned around and transformed as happened to Saul. And I guess it's one of the privileges of having been here a few years now that I can look around the room and see various stories of where that kind of transformation has happened. But can I also be honest and say that I can look around the room and see various occasions where, not that it's for me to judge, but where I wonder if God still has more to do to transform in the way that he transformed Saul. But I love how we can see these stories of transformation happening among apparently unlikely people all over our church. You know, show me the very most eccentric or quirky of postgrads, and often they are the ones where God is deeply at work. Or spend just a few moments with the ACT ministry and hear the incredible stories of lives literally turned around to rival Saul uh, in not many a case. Or think about the stories of children in our church, often defying their parents' expectations and meeting God in powerful ways. And this is one key message from the life of Saul, that someone who in worldly terms was simply never going to get the gospel and yet was met profoundly and dramatically by Jesus himself. An enemy turned into a friend, a religious zealot becoming an apostle for the Prince of Peace. But how does this happen? And this takes me to my second point, that to be used fully, you do need to be filled. For those of us who've spent a long time in the UK, we are used to living, but perhaps not always used enough to critiquing the fact that we live in a country that has been sort of full of nominal Christians for rather too long. And so we're used to seeing people kind of going through the motions of Christian faith. The book of Acts is not full of people going through the motions of Christian faith. And I profoundly believe that God calls all of us to something radical and transformational, including for some the kinds of turnaround that we see in the life of Saul. But I also want us to track back for a moment to a few verses from chapter 8, which I think are helpful in this regard. So from chapter 8, verse 14. <clears throat> When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that there they might receive the Holy Spirit, 
because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So what's going on here? These new believers in Samaria had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, but the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. And then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So the very chapter just before Saul's conversion, we're reading about how the church dealt with disciples who had said yes to Jesus, but who hadn't yet been filled with the Holy Spirit. And remember, what does Ananias say to Saul? He says, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on that road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Saul had already met Jesus on the Damascus road, but God was not yet finished with him. And I wonder if for some of us, we might say that we have met Jesus. If you haven't met Jesus, I invite you to meet him tonight. But if you have met Jesus, if you have said this radical internal yes, deep within yourself to follow him, notice that here within scripture, quite unashamedly, if sort of theologically awkwardly, we read of people saying yes to Jesus and then sometime later being filled with the Spirit. So Ananias' role in this story is that he restores Saul's physical need, his sight, but he also speaks this spiritual healing into him. Now this phrase, being filled with the Spirit, the phrase Ananias uses as he prays for Saul, it occurs at various times in Acts and elsewhere, but I think for many of us it can be an elusive concept. I'm sometimes intrigued to kind of ask people, well, do you think you have been filled with the Spirit? Can you tell me about it? Or is this just a kind of sort of linguistic um, sort of veiled area where I'm just not quite sure what's going on? Well, a book on these themes that I often recommend to people, it's a very short book by uh, Graham Tomlin called uh, The Prodigal Spirit. Um, he's now the Bishop of Kensington. He taught at Wycliffe Hall here in Oxford for many years. And it's a fantastic introduction to life in the spirit because it, it sort of deals with the biblical and the, the experiential side of things, but it also sets it in the kind of intellectual context and the historical context of what's going on in the book of Acts that we're reading about tonight. And he has this uh, single sentence to define being filled with the Spirit, uh, and I really want to emphasize that with you this evening. He says, being filled with the Spirit completes a person completes a person so that they finally discover their true identity and calling, being in Christ and becoming like Christ. Being filled with the Spirit completes a person so that they finally discover their true identity and calling, being in Christ and becoming like Christ. Well, when I spoke at this service uh, last month on Pentecost, um, 
I spoke a little bit in particular about my own kind of first experiential encounter with the Holy Spirit. And it was a very, um, you, you might say you'd blink and you missed it, but for me, it was deeply significant that I had a single tear and a single quiver in my left leg because it made all the difference in terms of actually believing that God might be real and kind of making himself present. Um, but I do want to tell you tonight about my own experience of being, as it were, emphatically filled with the Spirit. So, because the, the, the point about this is that you know where you were. You know what changed. You are absolutely clear that you're not the same person afterwards. And if you're sitting here this evening thinking, well, my experience of Christianity doesn't feel remotely like that, I venture to say in all charity that perhaps even if you've had numerous encounters with the Holy Spirit, perhaps you haven't yet been filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is about your radical yes. This is about a full sense uh, of surrender. But it can also happen in unlikely or unexpected places, just as for Saul. Um, there are probably a few people here who've been to the High Lee Christian Conference Center uh, in their time. It's an entirely unassuming place with a sort of rather dull 1960s hall. Uh, and I was there at the end of a morning session on a church weekend away. Wasn't particularly enjoying the session or the weekend. Had lots of complaints about the clergy. <laughs> and uh, this was before I was ordained, I hasten to add. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and um, towards the end of a pretty underwhelming session, the curate, for whom I didn't have total respect, said, well, let's have a time of ministry. And he invited us to stand. Uh, and he said, I think there are some people here who are sort of sensing a call in the prophetic. Now, I barely really knew what the prophetic was. I knew that there were prophets in the Old Testament with beards, and, you know, that was about, you know, the extent of my knowledge. Um, I had a kind of sense that the work I was then doing as a journalist, at best, for the kingdom, was prophetic, because it could be about the light of truth being shone and I passionately believe that when Jesus says, the truth shall set you free, he really meant it. Uh, and therefore, there is a role, even if it's uncomfortable, for truth being revealed uh, and uncovered, not least in the church. So I decided to go forward, but only really because my philosophy in this church was that I wanted more of God, but I just wasn't sure whether this was necessarily the place I was going to find it. But I may as well, you know, have a go. So forward I went. And as it happened, my wife came to pray with me uh, and also uh, a family friend. And, you know, nothing spectacular happened to begin with. But as I was praying and as they were praying for me and I held out my hands, it was like a little kind of movie began uh, in my mind. And three people came to mind. And... I'm not someone who'd ever previously had visions involving the cross uh, before. But each of these three people, I saw them, and I saw them then advancing towards the cross. 
Now, uh, I was feeling called to pastoral ministry uh, at this point. I, I was in the process going forward for uh, ordination. And these were three people who all were facing astonishingly difficult situations in their lives. Uh, one was a, a victim of very, very serious sexual abuse. One uh, was someone with multiple learning and physical disabilities. Uh, and one was someone who'd been through a severe mental health episode. And my heart kind of, you know, swelled for all of them. I, I really was trying my best to care for them. But I, you know, I had no boundaries and I was basically desperately doing it in my own strength because I felt that, you know, the good news that I knew was so wonderful that surely me helping them would, would get them over the line, uh, as it were. And in that moment, it was like a movie playing in my head with each of them, the, the, the kind of, the, the narrative was, take them to the cross. In other words, do you not believe that the power of the cross is actually what is needed in this situation, not your own best intentions? And this was extraordinarily vivid. I mean, one of these people I can see literally wheeling themselves down a, a particular ramp outside um, Waterloo Station in London, and then across uh, appearing. But this became a kind of overwhelming realization. And the sense of the nearness and the presence of God uh, in this was uh, astonishing. And I ended up wailing, sobbing, big guttural sobs of the sort that I don't think I'd ever, literally ever, uh, cried. And I was kind of doubled over. <laughs> so, I mean, it was just, everyone else had gone to lunch, which was a great mercy. Um, and I don't think God meets us in ways that embarrass us. I never think he does that. I've never known anyone say, I met the Lord in ministry, and I was embarrassed, even if it was odd. And I did have a, a bit which was odd after I'd been doing my sobbing and I'd had my movie in my mind. I then had about 15 minutes where um, I was going like this, like I was a kind of deranged shop mannequin. Um, I, I still don't know the deep theological significance of this. Perhaps it was about receiving power from on high. I don't know. I mean, I have an idea. I mean, I'm sure I wouldn't have ended up here <laughs> without that. I mean, you may have your own views about that. But what I'm wanting to say is people still 2,000 years on have these kinds of defining encounters with God and they can change the course of people's lives. And the point is that these encounters desperately, desperately, desperately are not just for people like me with a dog collar standing on a stage, because this is the God who meets anyone and everyone, including Saul who wanted to murder Christians. So there is no one who's walked past St. Aldate's tonight who is beyond this love and this power. Of course, part of our job is to tell them that, but it's also to experience this reality for ourselves. So for me, it was about entering into a deeper season of ministry and being honest about not doing it in my own strength, but actually truly depending on God. I wonder what it is for you. 
I wonder what it is that you are risking holding on to tightly in your own strength in this city of self-sufficiency and chronic overachievement. What is it that you are not releasing to him? What is it that you're saying, well, Lord, I'll do anything but... You know, I mean, sometimes God is kind of amusing like this. You know, I love living in Oxford. I adore the architecture. I love being part of, you know, the city of dreaming spires with probably a higher proportion of Christians than anywhere uh, in the UK. In the summer, I'm moving to a town with the lowest rate of church going probably of any town in the UK, all built after 1950. It's God's idea of a sense of humor, I think. But the point is, this is absolutely emphatically not about me, but I'm trying to use these examples from my experience to encourage you also uh, to surrender to him. Because what does the Lord say to Ananias when Ananias with his doubts could go either way in terms of actually going and doing the Lord's will and meeting Saul and praying for him? He says... To him, God says to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument. Now, in Paul's case, he's a chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. But the point is, he looks at every single one of you and says, you are my chosen instrument. You are my chosen instrument. The question is, are you willing to discover where and how I want you to be my chosen instrument? And I really mean that. And we can so easily allow any number of cares or distractions, any number of sins, any number of the sins that have been done to us and kind of linger in a kind of polluting way within us to stop us living in the fullness of what it is to be God's chosen instrument. But what would it be for you to actually hear him say that to you tonight? You are my chosen instrument. And therefore I want you to love and forgive and keep no record of wrongs like I do. That might mean a dramatic turnaround in your life. It might mean there are things that you've been investing hours in that you suddenly feel, no, I'm dropping it. Because the thing over here that Jesus is calling me to is of infinite significance uh, in comparison. Graham Tomlin says, being filled with the Spirit completes a person so that they finally discover their true identity and calling, being in Christ and becoming like Christ. A few weeks before that more dramatic experience with the shop mannequin hands and the movie in my mind and lots of tears, we were having a very small scale service, I think on the Saturday of Holy Week, not one of the big moments. And I was uh, sitting at the piano in our church um, and playing, leading, I think, just a handful of people in singing When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And that final verse, 
were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. And that's the vision I want to bless you with this evening. And I desperately want to encourage you not to disqualify yourself from playing a full part in that as God's chosen instrument.